You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Can you hear me still? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'm like paranoid that the same thing's going to happen again. But I'm at home, so this should be fine. Hopefully. Should be good. All right, cool. Yeah, you're you're not working today. Are you playing a full day of hooky or are you working from home today, Meg? I'm working from home. I haven't even logged in yet, so working from <laughs> home is not going well. It's eleven AM your time now? Yeah, it's literally I've worked out twice. Like I just don't even care. <laughs> I'm like, whatever, I'm just taking the whole weekend. You you brought something up. So we tried to record with you, Meg, two weeks ago and you were in your car in the parking lot at work, <laughs> I think it was, and it yeah. didn't work out. But you were saying something super interesting because apparently you're playing hooky, so to speak, and you're supposedly on the clock right now. But you told us, and this didn't air because we didn't get to put the episode out, was that people at work have no idea that you take off your cape or your, your suit and you're superwoman, right? Like people at work have no yeah. idea that you're Meg Jacoby. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're like kind of starting to realize a little bit, but like they just don't really like grasp the whole like concept of it. So like occasionally my boss now, he was, I say he was a runner, but like he started running when he was like 40 and like his claim to fame is that he ran like an 18 minute 5k at like 40 years old. It's not bad. It's not bad. But I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, I, you know, when you hear the story 800 times, it's like, all right, yeah, got it. You know, and then um, (laughs) so he's like kind of grasping things. So occasionally he'll like ask me how a like a race went and then he'll like put a picture of me (laughs) from the race in our like department meeting slideshow, which is (laughs) so embarrassing. (laughs) Um, it's like so nice. Like he's trying, but I'm like, uh, like I'd rather not at that point. So, um, but yeah, like people don't have any idea, like what it means really, you know, like they're just like, I don't know, it was a CrossFit. Cool. Like that's fun, you know? And so they don't really get it. So it is very, um, like every time I've had like a crazy weekend. So like in Anaheim, when I had gotten the world record and, like I was a sub 60 first female performance. Like I come back on Monday to work and it's like such a high to like such a low. You're just like, and then you know they're like, Meg, where's the reports? And you're like, I don't know. I was too busy being an athlete this weekend. I didn't do them. You know what I mean? So it's very, it's very humbling. It's funny how race attire feels so normal until you see it at your place of employment. Yeah. When I, when I first started racing OCR, I was still teaching at the time. And someone after the Spartan World Championships, they were like, "What? how'd you do? I was like, well, I, I, I did all right. They're like, is there a race video? I'm like, yeah, there is. And we pull it up and they're like, Crocker's in his underwear. I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're done. I, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. That was like, I think I had like a, like a sports bra and like, you know, like the tiny shorts and I'm like flexing in the picture and I was like, Oh my God, this is so a, so embarrassing. B now like every man I work with is like terrified of me. So it, which actually I kind of like that. So let's keep that going. But, um, 
yeah, I was like, this is a little, this is a little awkward, but. That's a problem that, uh, humble people have, uh, which you have confidence, but you also have humility. It's like the great Hobie call, one of the, who is very confident, but also very grounded at the same time would go to work and they didn't even know he Spartan raced and was, a, like, I don't think they knew he did that. He just didn't talk yeah. about it. It wasn't his co-workers fault that they had no idea. It was his fault. And it's your fault because you don't even want to dwell on it with them. You don't even want to let them in. You want to keep that separate, right? It's probably no fault of theirs. Yeah. It's just like, you don't take the time to let them know how badass you are. And if, even if you told them, like, what merit would that hold, right? I don't know. It's just an interesting position yeah. to be in. You have a second life. It's, it's right. It's a, a few of my coworkers are like my age. So we obviously, you know, we follow each other on social media. So a lot of this time, like, if they bring it up to me at work, it's because they saw like my story post or something. It's not because I'm like, hey, I just did this awesome thing this weekend. They're more like, Hey, that was so cool. Like, and they know just because of like taking time off, they kind of know like a little bit about like my plans and where I'm going. So, and like what it's for, just because I have to like communicate with them, obviously, because they're like covering for me. So, um, but yeah, it is. And Jared Newby and I both work for the same company and we talk about this all the time because we'll like, like he'll go to the go, you know, he did super good at go rut games and he comes back and people are like, Oh, like, how's it going, Jared? What'd you do this weekend? And they're telling him, like, oh, I mowed my lawn and I did all this stuff. And he's just like, yeah, like, me too. You know, and really, <laughs> he did, like, a three-day insane competition with, like, a 16-mile beach run. Or, like, he, I ran with him in the half marathon. He broke the, like, half marathon ruck world record with, like, a 60-pound mm -hmm bag on his back. We're running like seven minute pace for 13 miles. Like that was not slow for me. I'm like, how is he doing this with this 60 pounds on his back? And like, people just don't, you know, so we, we always like talk about it, which is funny. So at least we have each other, but speaking of Jarrett, we were talking on race brain this week about, uh, it came out like freakish traits in the sport. Yeah. Like people who have that. It, what is the comparison to Jared's running under weight talent? Like what he can do running under right? heavy carry or a pack. Is there anything, does anyone else in any sport that you know of have such a freakish standalone skill? No, I really don't. Not that like comes to my mind. It's, it's crazy impressive. And he's like, he started training for Gora games last year in the spring and he just kind of like never really stopped it. And it mm -hmm. seems like it just became this like crazy skill that he had like in his repertoire that he didn't even really know about. Um, but that's like, so him though, is like, he does the most extreme things and like, but he's also not like overly trying to compete, you know, like, cause he, I think he's just at the point where he's like 36 and he has two children and he's married and, and they're, his kids are young so I think he's, kind of, he just like does these challenges to just like, like for him, like just for him, for his own weird goals that he has in his head. But like, he's an incredibly impressive person. And I wish more people knew about him. So he like got the real credit that he deserves because he is such a talented athlete. I think it's just, you know, like life, 
is kind of like came up, you know, for him. And I think that's kind of like where he's at. So, cause I, even in high rocks, like, I really feel like he just, he tried, he really tried this year. And I think just like had some things that just weren't really going his way. And I really hope he doesn't give up on it. Cause I really think that he can be an absolute hammer in high rocks. Yeah. So I hope he goes for it next year. Kirk, I don't know if you know, uh, newbies stats, but I think he was 150. I think he was under that. I think he was 148, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah. Quick. Never ran cross country either. He oh, he played soccer. He was a really good soccer player. Hmm. So he, and he ran cross country in college and was pretty good at it. But obviously track was more like his thing. So if someone came into the sport right now who had a 148 college PR and the world half marathon record for running with, was it 60 pounds on his back or is it 40? 60. 60, seven minute pace for 13 miles with 60 pounds on his back. The world would be lit on fire with what is this guy about to do? Yeah. Uh, but people mm-hmm. don't talk about him outside of the people who compete against him at his, and he kind of does niche events like go rock or he does, you know, the, the East coast gnarly stuff, but he he's not like out there on social media and going after things. But if those were the only two things you knew about an athlete, you'd be worried about what he's about to do at any yeah. version of OCR hybrid that he was about to do. Yeah, and he even did really well at he did Hunter's Battle Bunker last year. Did super well at it. Um I think he was just more focused on like the Gorex stuff this year, so he didn't even do the combine for it. Um and like the combine was a little bit different. Like Battle Bunker last year was a whole different thing than it is now. So it was very like niche to like there wasn't a lot there wasn't running really. I mean it's a, it's there's a mile run. Like that's not really there's not a lot of running. It was, it was like Metcon strength stuff. And so I think that just wasn't, he just wasn't really into it, but like he came in second at battle bunker last year, I think against obviously some pretty, um, talented people that we all recognize. So yeah, he's awesome. I think you got to go all in, in our sport in one, in one Avenue or be seen very frequently to get your recognition. Like the reason, well, obviously you're a very high performer, Meg, that's going without saying, but um, your frequency of availability has also been what's caused you to be rookie of the year. I just saw, for example, no duh, but <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably a little bit of it, right? Like if you dude, it's, what have you done for me lately? And if you're not doing it lately and consistent, then you just fall off people's radar. It's exactly what this sport is. It's like one night stand racing, unless you keep showing up repeatedly, then people take you seriously, right? Yeah, it's the, I think the power of like the social media side too is pretty insane and that's something like I've totally not really had before and then now it's like I don't know, like just the amount of support but also the amount of like people want to see what you're doing, like that kind of stuff too has been um I mean that's played a big part for me, I feel like. Yeah. I wonder with people like you this is a little bit of a pivot. Talk going back to you talking about work though. Like I'm Brack, and you gotta wonder the same damn thing. Like it crosses my mind more often than it should. Like how people like you keep a job, and I mean that like in a very endearing way. Yeah. With your flexibility of schedule, when you're working for the man, um, you're 
doing it all. You have a home life. Like, holy smokes. Like, can you walk me through that? There's a handful of people in our sport that I wonder that about. A Ryland Shadig who works, yes, it's a different type job, and he works multiple days in a row at a fire station and then has multiple days free, whatever. How do you do it? Yeah. Like, how does that work? Are you are you on borrowed time right now, or are you good to go? Are you balancing it all? So it's funny you say that because I was, like, just kind of having this, uh, like, epiphany on my flight home yesterday. I was like, this is unsustainable. Like, I'm not going to be able to keep working yeah. 40 hours a week and competing at the level that I am or just having the opportunity. Um you know, Hyrox gave us like a rundown of what next season could potentially look like. And from the looks of it, it would require potentially a lot more travel. And so this is already something I'm thinking about because I'm like, I, I've been burning through the PTL, let's put it that way. So, um, but yeah, it has <laughs> been, if I didn't have an amazing support system at home, like I, you know, I'm a single parent, but my daughter's father and I get along super well. We co-parent super well. We have for years. My parents are super involved. They help out a ton. Like I got home and my mom like cleaned my house. My dad had my driveway sealed for me. Like I'm like, oh, thanks guys. Like, um, like I had no idea they were doing any of this, but if I didn't have that, this would not be possible. Like it, it just literally wouldn't. Like my parents have been so supportive of my career and my dream and pursuing this. And so like anytime I need anything, they're there. Like they'll get my daughter off the bus if I have to get a workout in right after work. Um, I bought a ton of equipment to have at home, um, which was a really hard investment at first. Like when you're making no money doing this and you need to somehow build a $5,000 home gym, like that's really tough. Like it was really tough for the first I mean, I've only been doing this eight months. I'd say the first five, I'm like strapped. Like every dollar I have extra is I'm buying the flight to the next race. I'm paying for the hotel and in hopes that I'm going to make money, prize money in in hopes or that maybe someone will want to sponsor me and like it'll all come back in some way. But um, I, I realized that I needed accessibility in order to get everything done because having a child and my daughter also plays sports. So like, oh, and in the fall, I was coaching varsity cross country when I started all of this. So like I'm in the like hotel at States and the week later is the Deca World Championships. And I'm literally doing like an EMOM in my hotel room of like burpees I'm doing step ups on a table like it was ridiculous. So it was very, very hard. And that's part of like why I was having all these thoughts because I'm like looking back on all of these crazy times when I'm down in the basement at 11 o'clock, like getting the work done by myself um, when my, you know, when I get my daughter to bed. And um, yeah, it's. I'm realizing that if this is something I really want to pursue to the highest level and that I know I'm in, like, I know I'm capable of doing something with this, especially after I think what I've done recently, like I need to make some life changes maybe. So, um, I think we're heading in the, in the route of like, maybe not working 40 hours, but figuring something out there. So 
I find myself right now in listener mode where I'm listening to this rather than like being a part right. of it. And right off the bat, as a listener, what I would want to know is what does your $5,000 home gym look like? Like, what did you prioritize? Because we all go through this. Yeah. All right. I Is a treadmill better or an assault run or an air runner? And do I need a, a bike or should I just stick to ski? Can I get by without a skier? So I want to know, like, break it yeah. down. What does your setup look like? So I have a rower, assault bike, and skier. And those were really big pieces for me because I do a lot of E-mom or E-2-mom machine work. Or even just like long machine work intervals. And those are things that like I would end up doing at the end of the day and like have to drag my daughter to the gym like to go do. And there are days when she's like cool with it. And there are days where she's like, seriously, like we have to go work out now. And so those were things that I knew like if I had at home, there's a lot I could do with them. Like even just doing different Metcon type stuff or like really long, like long wads of strength with, you know, machine work. Um, I have a, you know, sandbags. I have two kettle, 50 pound kettlebells in case I want to do farmers up and down the driveway. And, um, I have a full rack bench, all the weights. Um, I have a lot of dumbbells. I love strength training. That's a huge part of what I do. Um, you know, just to keep, I, I think strength's really important in an event like high rocks, especially. So, um, you know, not like crazy, like I don't need to be deadlifting 405 or anything, but, um, just maintaining that I think has been really important. So it's like, if I can go get a lift in, in the morning or at night and not have to leave my house, that's really, that's a big win for my daughter. You know, I love going mm-hmm. to the gym and doing the work and, and all that. So it's, it's more about like helping her not have to make sacrifices. Um, but concept two did just recently send me a skier. So that's a new thing that I have. And like, thank you, you know, like that is going to make a world of difference for me. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like for now. You know, I have a box, I have a wall ball. I have pretty much all the tools. Um, but it's just in like an unfinished, my basement's not finished. It's like real raw down there. So Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you have a sled? I do not. That's next on my list because my gym actually just recently decided to buy the tanks, which are great because now I have that for DECA, but they are getting rid of the regular weighted sleds. Um, so like in my recent Hyrax training, I've been putting like 300 pounds of sandballs on the tank to try to make it like the high rock sled, like the stimulus of the high rock sled, but it just really isn't the same thing at all. So you got to get those sleds from your gym. I got to get the sled and then I got to call Rich and ask him how I figure out that carpet from Home Depot that he bought that he, that he cut in half and you have a treadmill. I do not. That's also another thing that I need to, that I need to get for hybrid racing. We're getting into the weeds here, but that's okay. Do you think for hybrid racing, a treadmill makes more sense or some sort of manual runner, an air runner? It's a tough question. I've never, my gym doesn't really have the air runners, so I haven't used them too much. I do like the idea that you are kind of setting your own pace, but I've done all of my hybrid training on a motorized treadmill. And I would say that my season's gone pretty well. So, Mm -hmm. um, it also allows me to 
I like that I can then push my pace more on that and get that feel and that stimulus. Like even though I'm setting it at 540, um, I like knowing how that's going to feel and how that affects me. And then the next station after and kind of like having that type of data. So, um, Mm. I don't know. I, it's worked for me. So I, it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. Um, and the air runners are like so expensive. It's foolish. It's just metal. It is. Unless they're like hooking me up with one, I'll probably just spend a third of the price on a, a you know, a treadmill. But that's just me. Yeah, that makes sense. Kirk, I know I derailed us, but I had to know. No, you didn't derail us. There's no, there's no such thing as a derailment here. I, uh, I kind of want to do things in reverse order with you today, Meg, only because okay. I want to, I want to under like get to know you as like a human athlete. Um, very yeah. curious, like how you even stumbled upon all of this and your background. Um, however, you're just so damn close off of the High Rocks World Champs that I feel like if we didn't talk to you about like try to unbox this last weekend first i think you'd be doing it a disservice so bracken are you cool with that if we kind of talk the world champs and then we we go back uh, a little bit are you fine with that i know it's non-traditional for us i think we can let it slide kenya i i would like to because i'm dying to know how how it's because you i I don't know if we're the first long um format conversation you've had since you are like can you okay so can you yeah. talk to us about it? Where does your mind first go when you think back on this last weekend? It's such a it's such a like conundrum of like thoughts because like on one hand, I'm eight months into this and I finished second at the world championships and I know that that is no small feat. I'm I'm super proud of it. I've had, you know, I have the world record still in the women's pro. I have the women's doubles world record. Like there's so much for me to be proud of that I'm trying to really focus on those things. But I would be absolutely lying to everybody if I didn't feel like it was a, like a fail, like for me. And people are... I've wrote, written a few posts about it on Instagram, and I think that people are maybe misunderstanding. Like, I don't personally feel like a failure, but I failed the mission. The mission was to win the world championship. I was the fastest woman. I came in seated first, and I didn't pull it off. That's a that's a failure. Like, when you're at this point. And I know it's it's early, so like I'm so appreciative of it. And I certainly didn't go in expecting it to be an easy win. I know the women that I compete against. I knew there were several women that could have been in the conversation, even with Michaela Norman dropping out. Um, I love Lauren Weeks. We had some really, really nice moments together after we crossed the finish line. I think we both respect the hell out of each other. We keep pushing each other to be better. I think we are together pushing the sport in an amazing direction. And I'm very happy to be a part of that. But like, I I didn't complete the task, you know, and Mm -hmm. that feels really crappy, obviously. And the crappiest part about it is that the part of the race that I feel most confident and strongest in was what went the worst for me. I did not run well. You will never win a high rocks not running well. You will never win it 
stationing well. And I stationed crazy good. And that is why it's so weird. Cause I'm like, I didn't run well. My legs didn't feel good running, but I still had the fastest one or two time on almost every single station. And I was catching on every single station but running is my thing. I'm the runner girl. That's what I'm known for. That's what I'm known to like have in my repertoire in this hybrid space is my experience running my times, things that I've done in running. So to not have that, like I was so, I, a, I was surprised a little bit. Um, but I was just like, wow, this really sucks. Like, this is what I felt like I had in my arsenal. Um, so yeah, it's been a really big like mix of feelings, I would say. Yeah, you you're going through right now what we've seen a lot when athletes are real about their perceptions of their performance after a non-win. And yeah. I, I've received a few times, Kirk, I don't know if you have, we've seen some of the top end people in the sport when they get done with a race and they're like, like all credit to everyone out there, but that that was a bad race. And people love to say, or like, I, that was a fail, or that, that was a failure, I didn't execute. People from the outside are so used to failing as a negative occurrence, and it yeah. says something about you as a person, that they can't, they don't want to hear that from an athlete. Yeah. Where they forget that in sport, like, you can fail and have a good day. Yeah. You can fail and be proud of yourself. You can fail and it moves you forward, or you can fail, be really not proud of yourself, and be okay. Yeah. Because if you fail in business or you fail in a relationship, it's, there really isn't a good part that comes from most of that. But it's hard for fans of you or people who are fans of the sport to hear someone say, oh, I took second and I failed. It grates at them. But it's never that's not the delivered message. That's not how it's intended to be felt. But it's how exactly. they take it. Exactly. And I, and I feel like what I want people to really understand is like, I'm not saying that if you come in second in the world that you're a failure. Or I'm not, you know, there are plenty of women that would love to be in my shoes. But what I'm saying is I came in seated to win. I came in as the favorite to win and I didn't win. So what that means for me is like it, it didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out. And that's why it feels like a negative thing for me. And, and then like, it's like I said, it's a conundrum of feelings because I am super damn proud of what I've accomplished. Um, and I mean, ultimately like that was a wild race, 32 seconds. It was 14 wall balls separated first and second place. We were neck and neck the entire time like this. It, it was an, an amazing, exciting, the most exciting race I've ever done in my entire life. So in so many ways, it's very, very positive. But when you come in and you are blazing a trail of this is the bar and I set the bar super, super high and I set it really high right before this race by throwing down that crazy time, anything less than that doesn't feel like what I know I'm capable of doing. Does that make sense? So it's like, yeah, so it was really hard. It was, it was, you know, I, Lauren and I had some really good conversation. There were a couple things in the race that, well, like one thing, my rope literally came off my sled on the sled pole. Um, and it was at full extension. So my judge, cause they're watching you in the box. So they're next to you. 
has to like run all the way down the lane and like hook it up. And so I lost some time there and I, you know, it's one of those, like, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the race. I don't think at all. Um, but there are some moments of like where you gain momentum. If you win a station, if you, if you come out first, if you catch up and and you are running out first, all of those things can be little mental game changers. So I do wonder like how I would have performed if that hadn't happened. Like, I don't think it affected me mentally because I think I'm a really sound, um, competitor where I don't get shaken up in the competition by things. Um, and I just immediately started counting when that happened, like how much time I was losing. Cause I knew I'd be fighting for the 15 seconds back at the end. It's a world championship. Like I'm getting every second I can, this shouldn't have happened, but I do, you know, there are those little things where like, would momentum have helped me at all, you know? Um, but you know, it is, like it is what it is too. And that's sports. So it's one of those kind of same things where you, you kind of wonder, but then you're like, it is what it is. We all have to deal with things. And that's just part of it. Right. And I, I don't think it's necessary to sugarcoat things in race recaps. And we can't stand when people get on and make excuses, but we also can't stand when people like wake up and fall asleep for eight months, every single day, dreaming about winning a world championship, get done and be like, Oh, it was fine. I lost. Yeah. Like you can have a moral victory and be devastated. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. That's okay. It was very hard to like, I, I try to be a, you know, I'm so proud to be standing up there, especially with so many people um, that have been doing this for a really long time. Like a lot of the women I compete with have been doing hybrid sports for much longer than I have. So it really is an honor getting to race with them. And I, you know, I really try to carry myself way, like, you know, grin and bear it. Like, but, you know, I'm standing up there and like, I want to cry. Like, I want to cry and leave. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and of course I don't because that's, you know, I'm a sports, you know, I have done this for a long time. And part of it is having humility and being humble and, you know, being a good sports person, having good sportsmanship. That's what I was trying to say. Um, but like, you know, it is really hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. You know, it really is. So, but I watched two CrossFit documentaries yesterday and I was like, Matt Frazier and Tia Toomey didn't win the first two times. They came in second. And I related so heavily to Tia Toomey because in the one competition where she came in second place, she was wearing the leader t-shirt. And that's what I felt like. Like I had the leader t-shirt on and then I got beat. And they came back and they've won like five times in a row. So, mm. you know, that's kind of the way I'm uh, approaching it from here on out. There's always what ifs, isn't there, after a loss? And for those of you who don't know, so I guess we shouldn't assume everybody listening understands what happened last weekend. So you were over the big pond at the High Rocks World Championships with the highest seeded time going into the world championships as the current world record holder in the high rocks event. And you went out there and got beat. You took second to a former world champion. Yeah. Okay. So like, right. Oh, one of the best, if not the best, I hate to say it still to do it. You guys are going to be button heads over it considering she's had a yeah. tenureship. So like you look at it from afar and you say, well, of course, like it makes sense. One of those two would have won. It happened to be Lauren. 
But when you're looking through your eyes, putting on your own shoes, having your own feelings, doing your own hard work, all the sacrifice I didn't know of, you know, being the single parent, working out at 11 and having help all around just to piece this shit together on top of buying equipment, spending your financial and emotional availability to go and show up at the start line expecting to win. No kidding. Yeah. Like walk you through that. And how couldn't anybody not understand that there's some disappointment with taking second because you hold right. a high bar for yourself. Right. And, and that's ultimately it. It's like, it's just the bar that I have set for me. Um, you know, I'm not doing this to be one of the best. I'm doing it to be the best. You know, that's the ultimate goal. Right. And, and if it's not, then like, why would I, why were we doing this? You know what I mean? Um, that's just the way that I see it though. And a lot of people, again, like, I don't want anyone to take offense to that. You are, uh, people are entitled to approach any of these things in their own way. Like if you're happy, just being happy and doing it, then great. But I'm not happy just being happy and doing it. I'm not happy unless I'm the best of the best. You know, that's, that's just where I want to be. So, so yeah, but again, it's like, I'm so new at this still. And that's something that I also was really thinking heavily about was, of course, Lauren is going to perform exceptionally well. She's been doing this for four years now, you know, um, so much more ex- race experience than, than I have. Um, but you know, like the, it's no excuses, but it's just like, it makes sense at the same time mm-hmm. in, in a way, you know, when people forget that all things are relative. If you were right. a 20th place finisher, you would look at second place and say, I would be so happy with second. But as a 20th place finisher, if you took 28th the next week, you'd be disappointed with yourself. Exactly. And if you got to second place, you'd think, if I would just be on the podium, I'd be eternally happy. But as soon as you're on the podium, that's your new baseline. That's your floor. Anything below that is how 28th used exactly. to feel. Like when people say, if I was just a millionaire, I'd be happy. No, you'd want your second million. Exactly. And you'd want your bigger, everything changes the moment you get to the next level. So it's not someone being elitist or any of the other words, people are ungrateful or a sort, like it's not, it's just, you would do the same thing if your current expectation wasn't met by something. Right. It all changes as soon as you're successful and you're too successful too fast. <laughs> you got to the top immediately. Yeah. And so there's no place to go, but where you're at or down. Exactly. And so your probability for failure is higher than everyone else other than Lauren, because there's only one result that will ultimately satisfy you. There's a million places to be had, but only one really ticks the box. Exactly. That's like the most perfect way to, to have put it. Um, and I wouldn't change anything. Like I certainly wouldn't, you know, have said like, oh, well, maybe if I didn't come in as great, then this would, you know, like, I certainly would never think that way either. Um, and someday, like, I might. It's a privileged position to be in, it which very is a much good so. position to be in. Right? Yes, it is not sucked. That's, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, and realistically, if Lauren doesn't take the last six to eight weeks and shore up her farmer's carry, you're sitting here as the world champ. Like you had a sled pull go wrong. You had your running kind of vacate you on the first half of every run. And you still would have won the world championship because 
she went 30 seconds faster on her farmer's carry than she ever really has done before in her life. It took yeah. the greatest farmer's carry she's ever had ever to beat you by 30 seconds. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where you understand on your off day, you still would have won it without her having the best performance she's ever had in four years. And that's one of the things that I've really thought heavily about was like on an off day, I was 30 seconds behind first place at the world championships. Like, and I did not have, like, I, I didn't feel great really from start to finish of that race. And I don't, that's something that I'm trying to figure out like what, like why, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, it's like, it's pretty, like this pretty damn good, you know, to, to be in that position. She ran the second fastest time in history. Yeah, exactly. In the, and like, I, one of my goals on the grid and knowing that it was going to be a four lap course was to be close to 60 minutes. And I was on a bad day. Mm-hmm. So like, it solidifies a lot of things for me. It solidifies how fit I am. It solidifies I'm doing all the right things in training. I, you know, 99% of the time I feel great. Like the, the training is working. It's been working. That 58 wasn't bullshit clearly because on a shitty day on the grid, I still ran 60 minutes. Um, you know, and we know that like the grid style sucks up a lot of time on certain events. So it's just, you know, there's a lot of like positives to take away from it. Well, and you referenced Froning and, oh no, sorry, Frazier and yeah. Toomey. And just like Mark Allen or any of these people that couldn't break through and then didn't lose for like a decade, I think all three of them, they don't go five-time champion unless they lose. Yeah. Like if you win your first one, you're just not as aware of the holes that could possibly exist in your game. And there's a little less fire. So it's, I mean, no one wants to hear like, this is the best thing for you. But if you win five, it's because you lost one. If you win one, you might not win five in a row. No, I completely agree with you. And I think Hunter is another example of it. He didn't win the first time that he went out there and did it. Um, and now he's won the last three years in a row. Um, and so I do think that that will play a really big role in, you know, what's motivating me. So, so be scared, ladies. You heard it here. I think they're already scared. Um, when you crossed <laughs> the finish line, we couldn't pick up a lot of athlete audio. Uh, by the way, Pat High Rocks on the back for the production. Uh, the production value is oh, the best yeah. thing we've seen in OCR hybrid since the dawn of these type of competitions. The energy, like you could feel the energy as a as somebody watching with the crowd and the the stands and the just the it was all encompassing. It had to be the most electric event you've competed in, I imagine, maybe in Absolutely. your life. Absolutely. Um, oh yeah. Which was, they did a fantastic job, and I and. And we'll, Bragg and I will be the first to gripe about coverage and how the events feel. You you go from watching like a Spartan 3K event in Big Bear and there's four spectators and then you go watch a High Rocks. I mean, it's a world champs granted, but oh my God, production value is fantastic. Did it feel as energetic as it looked? Absolutely. Like the coolest thing I've probably ever experienced was because thankfully because I was seated first I got to do it first and I think it was like kind of the coolest at that moment because there was so much smoke but like I walk up on the stage and they announce my name and there's all this smoke and the crowd is going crazy oh my god it was like 
the coolest moment of my entire life, literally. And like, I get to run down. I don't know. It was, it was very cool. Um, it was kind of nerve wracking, of course, because then you're standing on the line and you have like 3000 people staring at you. I've competed at big track meets, I, you know, in college and, and all these things, but in a track meet, all eyes aren't on you. There's 12 other events happening at the same time. You know, there's a high jump, there's a pole vault going on. They're throwing over here. All the people there, even at a big meet, they're not all watching the 3k on the track, you know? So this was intense, you know, just, it was amazing. And they did do an amazing job in like coming around that corner with all the crowd. And I actually had, um, four of my friends traveled over with me to just like support me. They were standing like right by the out arch. So they were right there in the front every time. So I got to pass them every single time. Like it was, it really was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, um, it made Deco worlds like, <laughs> meh, like really, really underwhelming. Let's put it that way. So Deca's got to step their game up because that was very, very cool. Yeah. Um, one follow-up question about the audio, which I was going to ask is, we didn't pick up much audio, so the crowd, the athletes, little, you know, jabbers back and forth, some of that. But I did pick up a few I'm sorry's from Lauren Weeks after you guys crossed the finish line. Like, I remember, maybe you don't even remember this. I don't know how blurry it was to no, you. No, I do. But you two are laying on the floor. And the first thing I think she said to you was, how did this happen or whatever? And then she apologized to you. I believe like what she was that first conversation? For, what, yeah. She apologized what for what, what happened to my about? sled. <laughs> of course she did. Oh. First thing she said to me, and, and, and here's why, because she had a sled push issue at the European championships where like the middle bar was like toppling over. So her weights kept sliding um, and they wouldn't let her go to a different lane. And they kept every, every time she'd push it over the line, they'd like try and fix it and then make her go back. And they wouldn't just put her in a different lane. It was the silliest thing I've ever seen. So when I cross, um, you know, we lay down together and we're just like, we're literally holding hands and we're just talking. And that was one of the first things, you know, of course I'm just saying like, congratulations and all this stuff. And then she was like, I'm so sorry about what happened to your sled. Um, and I think, and that means a lot because it, it's just the little recognitions from her and I, I think towards each other has been really, really nice. And just like, she's just an amazing human being and somebody I look up to so much in this and I'm so inspired by her. And so that means a lot to me because I really do look up to her like, I think we're the same age, but I kind of look at her as like the older sister of high rocks. You know what I mean? So, um, so it was really nice. And like, we just kept, I just said how cool it was that we get to do this for our daughters. And we have that, you know, mom to daughter thing in common. And, um, yeah, I posted a picture that my daughter's father sent me of her sitting in front of the TV watching my race. And like, I know that it's it's just a very cool thing that she and I get to have this experience together. And I know her daughter's a baby, so she might not see this the way my daughter is seeing it right now. 
but like someday she'll understand like how amazing her mom is. And I just think that that's really, that's really cool. So that was like literally half the conversation. We were just like momming it out on the stage, but yeah, she's, she's just such a kind competitor. You know, she, she just really is. And I think I am too, but I'm just, I'm very intense and I'm very bubbly and I'm very like, this is who I am. And like that kind of thing. And she does it in a, in a quieter way. And I think that that's really, um, just really special and unique to her. It was such a stark contrast to Hunter and Megita's interactions on course. Yeah. I saw that, uh, (laughs) video and I was like, what happened? I don't know the whole backstory to this, so if you have the deets, I would love to hear them. Oh, I mean, not to make this a TMZ hour, but <laughs> Megiddo, from the beginning, has taken shots at Hunter to get his shine, to get into his first pro race or elite race or whatever. Uh, and then after after the High Rock Chicago coverage, Megiddo just went kind of off the rails on a podcast about Hunter. Oh, and said okay. some like, just really, really personally attacking things. It, it went beyond like the professional coverage of the event, which there might have been merit for, and it went into like really profane, definitive statements about Hunter as a person. Yeah, and Hunter has tolerated Dave in the past, and I think that was kind of the end of it. Yeah, but anyways, you like in boxing, they know how, you sell a fight by starting drama. Yep. And they sell it, sell it, sell it, and then afterwards it falls apart and you have to move on to the next one. Right. And so even though these like huge dramatic rivalries are so great for bringing eyes to the sport, they collapse under their own weight because it's not sustainable. Yep. And what you and what you and uh, Lauren have is something that can build race to race. Where yeah. it's not thriving off of negative emotion and so it's not gonna consume it all up. And you can have this like knockdown drag out war and then hug. And then like, give each other all their due and then spend the next eight weeks only thinking about that person to yeah. crush their soul again. And it's like, it's a sustainable cycle yeah. rather than these hatred rivalries that can't last. And it's so much more positive because it's like, of course, I think we both, I'm sure, I'm sure she wants to beat me just as much as I want to beat her, but it's done in a positive, respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really important. And I'm not one to like, Like, I have no interest in any of that, like, trash talk type stuff. Like, there was a video that came out about Hunter and I where I think it was Matt B. Davis's thing. And, like, our competitors were asked if we were beatable and it was posted the day of the race. I hate that stuff so much. I do not want any part of that. If I ever get asked to have that conversation about somebody else, I will say no because that's just, that's just not like what I'm about or what I'm here for, you know, and they might be in good fun and it's great for likes and clicks and all that type of thing. But ultimately we're just human beings. We're just, we're just people trying to do the best that we can. And even if we're fierce competitors, like, you know, we have feelings. So it's just something that I'm very aware of having kind of seen some of it already in the last few months it targeted towards me. So yeah, just, I don't know. But yes, when I saw the video, I was like, Oh my God, what is going on? What drama did I miss? So thank you for sharing. You're so welcome. (laughs) Not, not that this is about lip service to Lauren. Um, 
and we've talked to Lauren. We had a great conversation with Lauren Weeks. If you want to go back a few months, we talked to her pre-World Champs. But um, if you're going to lose to somebody, you want to lose to somebody who's earned it, right? Who's run with balls, we'll call it. And it's yep. not like you faded and got nipped in the back half. It's like if you lose, you want to feel like whoever beat you earned it on that day. They didn't yeah. get lucky or it fell their way. It 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 leads me to my last question about it, really. But there, it has to. It's like very lightly rose tinted glasses on losing, I would call it. But what did you need to do differently to win? Was it the fact that your systemically your body just wasn't quite where it needed to be on race day? Is that it, or like how could you have won yeah. that race given how you felt? Like if now that you've had to reflect, I think that that was really really it for me. Um, because I do believe that I would have been able to keep up on the runs, especially. And, um, I think I've, I've raced Lauren before where I kind of allowed her to have a little bit of a lead on me and then made a move later in the race. And what happened was I started making the move on the row and I caught up and I didn't row overly hard for myself, but I just my legs actually really started cramping and I couldn't run off the row. And then when I'm doing my farmer's carries, my quads and my calves are like literally cramping up and I just couldn't really move quickly. Like the way that I normally do. Um, farmers is usually a station that I'm really strong at. Lunges is a station I'm extremely strong at. So I know that if I can run late in the game and then hammer those stations, like I know I can, I, I always feel like I, I feel confident even allowing her to have a lead that I will, that I will overtake. And I did that in, um, Chicago. Um, and so that's really how I was planning on approaching the race. I just, something was going on with my body that I've never experienced before. Um, where like, and it's a similar feeling to how I felt. This is really interesting. It's, I felt this in the last two miles of like every half marathon I've ever done where I start cramping up everywhere. My calves start cramping. I don't know what it, what it is or why. Um, I know other people, other people feel during high rocks. I've never personally felt like it was a long enough race to need to do that, but something was going on. I don't know if I needed more sodium. I was super hydrated. So I don't know. Something was just weird. Um, and I, and I, and I think that that impacted me heavily and, um, had it not, I think that I probably would have been closer, maybe not have won. Um, cause like I said, Lauren has had, Lauren had a hell of a race. Like she had a phenomenal race. So I certainly don't want to take anything away from her, but, um, just something was definitely off for me. The great Steve Prefontaine said this about racing his competitors back in the day. He always wanted to race his competitors, get his shot at La Severin before the Olympics. And he said, well, you can stay on your home turf and you can let them wonder what you're capable of, but then you're going to wonder what they're capable of, or you can go meet them square on and learn each other now. And I think, unfortunately... On your side of this, the fact that you and Lauren have had a chance to butt heads, the fact that your face is on her dartboard, the back half of the race, knowing what's happened to her in the past, it's like, well, what do good athletes do? They fix the problems, right? 
Yeah. And she fixed the problem. Yeah, definitely. I cramped in every race I've run internationally over 45 minutes. And I've only cramped two times domestically in like 200 races. And for some people, it's totally fine. There's there's other things that I've done that or that I did over the week that I know now were rookie mistakes. Okay. And one of those is that I tapered way too much and I always perform terribly if I taper too much. And this is, I think, just because of the type of athlete I am and what I do normally in my training. My training is so high volume that if I cut that volume too early, I always feel like I don't have the pop that I, I normally feel. When I raced Anaheim, I did a hard workout on Wednesday. And then ran five miles Thursday, four miles Friday. I lifted Thursday and ran five miles. And then I raced on Saturday and I ran 58, 58. Like I know that about myself. And I think just with the traveling and like, I did some touristy things on the front end. We'll never do that again, ever. I will never do that again. And I don't feel like being on my feet and walking around was bad for me per se, but I don't feel I was as focused as I needed to be um, mentally. And that's one of those things that it's like, you, you're learning about yourself as an athlete and what you personally need so much. And like I said, you know, I'm eight months in, I'm still trying to figure this out. What works best for me? Um, and normally I like to keep things really light. I don't like to sit and think about a race for days in advance. I, And part of that is because of the athlete I've been in the past. So I know that those things don't work for me and that I tend in years and years ago when I'd race in college, I would overthink things. I'd be super concerned about who I was racing against. So now I've learned like, I trust my training. I know what I'm doing and I don't need to be, you know, super serious five days out from a race. But, um, yeah, I think I just made some maybe travel mistakes and I won't do that again. So, and, and just like I said, the taper thing, like I tape, I basically tapered for like five days. That's not what I would normally do. So sticking to my plan, regardless of who I'm with or where I am, I need to make sure that I do that every time now. It's so difficult. And it is hard because it's like logistically not easy. You know, it's not easy to go find a gym that has every Hyrox piece that I need and get a workout, a normal workout in on a Tuesday after yeah. traveling eight hours overseas the day before. Like that's, you know, it's not that easy. It's not what you want to do either. Well, and it's like if if traveling tapers you too much because day of travel, like you can do something before you leave, but once you land, you shouldn't do too much. And the next day you shouldn't do too much. And now you're within two days of the competition. Like that is a five day taper. And if that's, if that leaves you feeling sluggish, well, that kind of screws you over. Yeah. But arriving last minute allows you to train normally at home, but then you have to deal with racing off of overseas travel. Yeah. So then the only real sustainable race wise option is to arrive two weeks early, take your down week, like the first half, like the first five days of getting there and then get back to normal training and show up to the race rested from the previous week, but not tapered that week. Kind of like Kirk, your reverse taper where you taper a week or two early, build your volume back up and race feeling good. But now that means you have to take two weeks to travel and get there. Right. It's, there are some people who can just travel and race. 
Yeah. And for everyone else, it's like, where, where do I give? Because something has to give. How does this equation balance the best it can? And that's exactly. really difficult because how many times do you have to practice it? Right. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's like figuring out what the right recipe is for me, basically. Um, and, and it's like, again, like when I raced in Chicago at North American Championships, I felt great in that race. Mm-hmm. because I traveled two days before and that was, and it's a two hour flight. So it's like trying to figure that out has been, and will continue to be a challenge, I think, but you know, I'm not the only one doing it either. So it's like no excuses at the same time. I got to figure it out and just learn how to race. And thankfully I know how to push myself. Like even when I'm tired, I don't give up. So and that's something that I practice heavily in, in my training. I think when you're a higher volume athlete, I do a lot of my workouts not feeling great. A lot of the time I'm sore from what I did the day or two before that. And I think that that has also really helped me in these situations where I don't feel great, but I still have to hammer as hard as I can. I can't give up. I can't, I can't say, oh, chalk it up to a bad day. Um, cause I would not be able to like live with myself if I did. Um, but a lot of it has been really, really good mental preparation. You know, I know I can get through a 60, 70 minute high rocks workout at pace or faster on sore legs. I know I can do that. I've done it a million times, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I think there, even with all those things, there's like a reason why I was able to hang on and, even on a bad day, stay within that 30 second range of Lauren at the end there. Um, so anyone watching this, don't be fresh all the time because <laughs> it's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Are you allowed to share what, what high rock shared with you about what ne- next year is going to look like? Or was that a professionally professional athlete exclusive? Can you fill us in? Matt B. Davis has already posted it, so I can say oh. whatever I want at this point. There are potentially going to be four regional championships. So instead of the, the two we had this year, we had a European and a North American. There are potentially going to be four. Um, this is part of why I need to figure out my job, because four opportunities to podium and make money. Um, and that's obviously a huge part of me being able to continue doing this. Um, you have to have one time in, in a normal season race to obviously get your, it's, they're sticking with the elite 15. Um, so you have to have your elite 15 spot. And then even if you race in a regional championship and podium and qualify for the world's, because that gets you the automatic spot. They're doing four with three automatic to worlds. No roll down though. You can no roll down. You can still get bumped out of the elite 15 and then not be eligible for the next regional race. Does that make sense? Are you saying logically or do we understand what you're saying? (laughs) Logically, it doesn't make sense, but yes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I believe so. They're going to do also a last chance race with three potential podium. Or to, I don't know. That part I'm confused by because if likely it won't be 
a complete different podium at every single regional race, right? Like we saw it was the same three people for the women. The men's was a little bit different, but Sandy was in both. So also I heard it's your average of your two best times. So to get in by time, Hmm. because if the podium stuff doesn't swap, then it's just top three and then next best 12. Cause it's like the same thing. If it was like, Michaela Lauren and I podiumed at all four of those regional championships and there are still 12 t- spots for by time and they will combine the average of two times. I like this because that is they're trying to resolve the course differentiality issue. That's their solution. That's why I don't like it. I think that's smart. I do like it that for that reason. I do too because if you're a consistent racer like myself if I didn't go to any regionals and podium and get an automatic spot, like I'm good because my average time is going to be basically the same anyway. True. I think it will also, I, I read Matt's, you know, pre-race eval thing and saw a lot of the times people have run and there were some drastic differences. (laughs) So I think this is a wise decision. Um, so that's that portion yeah. of it. Um, and then there will be a last chance opportunity race that like, if you have an automatic spot, you are not allowed to do. And then again, like that could be anybody who isn't in or is on the cusp or whatever can go do and potentially get an automatic spot. It's the Tom Hogan race. Exactly. And um, I think only one of those regionals is in the States and then the rest are all abroad. So, um, you know, more travel opportunity. And and I like that they're doing more races where we can potentially win money um, because that was a thing this year that, from my understanding, they had taken away. Like previously, you would podium and you would make a check at a regular race. And they did away with that this year. And then they only went to having three chances for people to earn cash. So now there are more, which is great. And it's a sign that it's growing, I think, too. The more money they're willing to put up for podiuming, in my eyes, means the more participants, the more profitable it is. Um, and that's great for me. So so that's kind of the gist, unofficially. I'm tracking. So why don't you like it then, Brad? Well, I don't want to turn into Rich Ryan here and just pit U.S. against Europe. However, I think having to have two fast times, uh, it just uh, magnifies the pre-existing condition between U.S. and European opportunities where they have like seven times the number of races. So yeah. they have more opportunities to do that. And they have a propensity towards uh, faster courses. So if you hit two Spanish races there, your chances of popping two good ones are high. Whereas here, like the guy, it, our women are so strong that it seemed like you just got in because you're good. But our guys who need to find the right course, like you might find it in Dallas, you might not find it in LA. And now there's only two other races in the US that year. Right. So the chances of finding two fast courses are twice as bad as finding one fast course in the US. 
and overseas, there's just more opportunities to do so. So I think it actually makes it harder for U.S. men to qualify, but it makes it more fair that you can't find one crazy course where maybe it's only 900 meters of running or whatever it is. It does fix half the problem, but I think it magnifies the other half of the problem. I think a lot of, from, from being in the briefing and hearing things from other people, I think that the the men especially are still very unhappy that it's only 15 people. Um, I think that was the hope that they, a lot of people were hoping they would extend the field maybe to 20, maybe to 30. Um, And so. Although how do you keep something exciting as you make it exclusive? Right. There is that piece to it. Anyway, uh, rumored world championship location. Are you allowed to reveal that? I think Florida. Yeah, Miami, which negates travel mm-hmm. for you. Yes, plus it's that's a plus for the Americans for sure. Um, and my my family is like stoked to hear that because then they will come and get to do the whole thing, and my daughter will get to come. So I that's really cool. I hope that that's you know I hope that that's what happens. Yeah. So to set the stage here, you are the world record holder at High Rocks, which is. For anyone who's listening from the running community, it's a competition where you run eight by 1,000 meters. And in between every run, there is a roughly equivalent time duration of strength work. It should balance out. So at the end of the race, it's roughly somewhere between 50-50 and 60-40 of time spent running to time spent doing strength-based elements. So it's a hybrid competition. Well, Meg's the world record holder by like a minute and a half. Uh, less now. But yeah, less into now. The world- Going into world championships, she'd run a 90 seconds faster than any woman ever had. And so is the archetype for this sport. She's incredibly strong, a very fast runner, and can tie them both together. So now I want to know why, which means we have to go back to the beginning and okay. build out the your pathway towards bringing these really three different crazy types of skills together, which generally don't exist on this planet. Yeah. So start me early. Basketball was my biggest sport for many, many years. Um, I played travel basketball like I think I started in fourth grade. So um, that was really the main thing. And we played soccer. We did, you know, we did softball. Like we did all that kind of stuff. My brother and I were big outdoorsy kids. We were like not really allowed inside. You know, we were the kids that like came home off the school bus, like through our backpacks in the house. And then we were riding bikes, playing basketball at the park. We were always outside being active. Um, and we were always playing games. So I feel like I just had a very natural competitiveness, um, to me very, and my brother's the same way. So it must be something in the way that we were brought up, um, to kind of have that same mindset, but yeah, we, I was just always outside doing whatever. Um, one of the biggest early memories I have though, regarding running is, um, my best friend's cousin is actually Molly Huddle. And when I was in fourth grade, my dad took me to one of her high school track meets. We lived 40 minutes away from each other. So we were in the same section in New York state. And she at this time was starting to break records. And I think it was like a state qualifier race. So I went and I watched her and I remember thinking, I want to be just like that. 
and she ended up going to Notre Dame on a full ride, had set a ton of New York State records and track in cross country. And I was just like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. I want to be just like her. And, um, that kind of like started it. Like I literally used to train for the gym mile in like fifth grade. (laughs) My dad would tie me running laps around the block. It was probably about 400 meters. So, and my dad would stand out there with a stopwatch and tie me and we didn't have, I, I like, I remember Tara Jackson telling me she did like basically AAU track. We didn't have that anywhere near here. I, so I, my first exposure like to team running was in seventh grade when you could sign up for, you know, middle school cross country. Um, but when I started cross country, so it wasn't just like a dream of like being good. It was like, I knew that this was something I could be good at. I never lost a single race in middle school in cross country or track. So you know, they wanted to pull me up to varsity, do the whole thing. My parents were very smart about it. Um, had talked to Molly's family and I did not do that. They actually kept me at at the modified level, just having seen a lot of, I think often girls had, would get brought up early and then burn out. And that was something that my parents were insanely smart about it, even if I hated them for it at the time. Um, and I went, basically as a freshman into being one of the top athletes in the state. And I knew basically by eighth grade that I could go division one in this if I kept working hard. And that was a really cool thing, but it was, it's also a lot of pressure to know that that early and have that kind of in the back of your mind or people telling you that, um, cause I basically was very serious about it. And I, not that, I didn't have fun doing it, but it was always like just very work, like work, get better. You know, it, it wasn't like as fun, I guess, sometimes, um, especially when you're like 12, you know what I mean? Like that's, you're young. Um, and so basketball was something that I always did because I loved, like, it was so fun to me to be a part of like a different type of team. And I arguably probably could have played basketball in college too. I just chose to focus myself on running. So was still a good basketball player, but, and I, then I played through my senior year and then I would sneak over in college and play uh pick up at the, the rec center. And if my coaches had ever known that I would have gotten killed. So <laughs> that's kind of it. Well, it's not it. Well, that's, yeah, there's plenty yeah. more. Yeah. Um, one, uh, I'm curious about the family dynamic growing up. Um, who's who's initiating these block repeats as a child? Is it like dad is like, well, Meg, if you want to be good, this is what we do. Or are you like, dad, time me. I want to run around the block. I'm curious about that. No, that was definitely me. That was definitely me. That was you. Okay. Yeah. There was no extra My- pressure on you from authoritative figures in your life. That was all you, their internal drive. That was all me. Definitely not at that point. I was like kind of that kid that I I always like say this about myself, like jokingly, but like, I'm like a junkyard dog. Like I want to work. And I've always been like that, (laughs) even as a kid. Like I, if I like wanted to be good at something, like I really would work for it. Like I, 
I would do, I did all the little things too, which is so like, I coached high school for years and that's not something you ever see. Like I'd have to be preaching constantly about doing all the stretching and all this other stuff and like core and strength. And these were things that I did on my own super, super early. And I think I just, I don't know. I just kind of realized like, this is what you do if you want to be good at something, you know, you, you just have to work for it. And that was, that mentality is very much from my father. Like if you're not, I, I just posted about this in my house growing up and in my house still now with my daughter, if you are not satisfied with the result, you work harder. You just, that's just what you do. You put your nose down, you work harder. Like there's no excuses. There's no blaming the coach. There's no blaming other people. It's you want to get better. You want to be better. You want to perform better Then you better get better. And that's just kind of how like my brother and I were brought up. And, um, and that's so huge because I wasn't the most naturally talented athlete, but I will outwork anybody. And I've always been like that. So that's why I had success. I wasn't, I was not like Molly Huddle. I was not setting records as a ninth grader and, and all of that. I just worked my ass off. And I know people like don't love hearing that a lot of the time. Like, oh, you have to really work hard to get things you want. Well, yeah. Aren't junk, aren't junkyard dogs like scrappy and kind of vicious? Wouldn't you think yes. like a like unnecessarily okay, maybe mean? A sled dog's a I would think like a sled dog. Yeah, I was just thinking. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm all for the the grit for sure. I was just curious. Yeah. The junkyard dog sounds more badass. Yeah, it does sound a little more badass. They're scary and intimidating too. Mm-hmm. Usually, you don't mm-hmm. want to go near them. I like to pretend like I'm like that. So you got a almost full scholarship to UConn. Yes. And got to compete then in a power conference. Yeah. And what was that like, that transition to D1 from not a massive high school division? What what was that landing like? So I, same thing. Like I, I was just very aware that I was not going to go in. You know, you go from being a big fish in a small pond to the total opposite. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. I like, I think I was just a person that just had a lot of awareness. Like I knew I wasn't going to be the best on my team walking in. And so I, again, like I worked tirelessly like all summer to be prepared and, and I was, and I handled, I handled the volume of my freshman year exceptionally well, you know, and, and it worked you know, I went from running like a 1020 my senior year, 3K, maybe even maybe a little under that, and and to go in sub 10 like five months later. You know, like things really were clicking for me. Um, I did the steeplechase only my senior year. Um, and I ran a seven flat 2K steeple, podiumed at states. I ran it three times. And then like I go to Yukon and like that's like my main event in outdoor track. Um, and it did pretty well, uh, in it having very little experience doing it. Cause like I said, I'd raced it three times ever in my life before going to college. So it's like, um, I forgot what the question was. 
I just went on a tangent, but what it was like to get to the big pond. Of yeah. Oh D1 yeah. Athletics. So like, it was very, I loved it. It was super exciting for me. And like, as a freshman, I think, you know, your goals, if you can make it in the, if you make the big East conference championship meet, like that's pretty big. And, and I did. Um, so that was, you know, pretty cool. And, you know, I think I was in, like second on my cross country team in the fall. Like I would kept finishing in second place for a team. And, um, but you know, I knew, I knew I wasn't going to go in and like be the star. Um, but yeah. And I had a really great coach. I had a female coach. She was a pro athlete. Um, she had just retired and then started coaching as I was coming in. So she actually was not the coach that recruited me. Um, but she and I, she were, we have like the same personality. So we just clicked, um, you know, really well and yeah, but you know, things obviously ultimately didn't go super great after that first year. So what domino fell first? So one of the biggest things I think for me that I've learned about myself as a runner is that I need strength training to stay healthy. And I had done a lot of that in high school on my own. My parents, um, like I said, you know, that I was always like, what can I do to be better? And I knew I should start training. I should strength train. I should do core every day. I should do all these things. So I had been strength training for a few years at this point. And, you know, this is back in like 2009 where we still have very old school mentalities about running and running training. Mm-hmm. And lifting is not a priority. And even though we had weight room slots twice a week, which is still not very much, we were not really encouraged to go and we typically ended up missing it. And mm-hmm. so I learned very early on that like I'd go home, I'd go back to the gym that I actually still train at now and I'd get really strong and it would keep me healthy all summer. And then a few months into the season, things would start falling apart again because I wasn't doing that stuff at school. Um, So yeah, I've learned that early on. And that's something that as an adult, I do religiously. Um, So that was probably kind of the start of it. And then the other aspect of it was that I was an 18, 19 year old running 80 miles a week. You know, it's probably under eating, encouraged to probably be under eating, Um, constantly being talked about my weight. That was a thing, not by my female coach, but by our head coach. And our name would be on a board in the, you know, event center where every athlete can pass by and see. And if your name is on the board, that meant you needed to go see your head coach. And he was kind of a scary dude. So you knew you were in trouble. And that was any basis of any conversation was not like, Hey, you're not performing well enough. It was always, Hey, you're performing well, but you'd probably be even faster if you lost 10 pounds or, or whatever. And that was a point where I started realizing that this is not an environment where my best interest is being had. So being the tough ass girl that I am, I said, see you later. Were you able to get out before it took root? inside of you? Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky that I'm very stubborn because I was like, I'm not doing that shit. Like, you know, like I was kind of like the screw you person and that did not 
thankfully, because I think I'm just a very strong, like very confident in who I am person, I did not succumb to that pressure. I definitely got very restrictive. I think we all were very, very restrictive, but I never went over the line and um, very, very thankful that I didn't. And nowadays, like, I'm so proud of the body that I have and like the, like getting to be fast in, in running these, like some of the times that I've run while not looking like the girls that I'm racing. Like I got really, really proud of being able to do that, you know? And that was something that, um, I might not have had as much earlier on. Mm -hmm. And, And it is hard. It is hard being, you know, when I was in college, I pretty much, I looked pretty similar to how I look now. So it's hard. There were times like I'm stepping on the line and I'm looking next to me and these girls are 110 pounds and I got 20 pounds on them, maybe 30, you know, some of them, but they just looked so unhealthy. And I was just like, I just can't, I could never bring myself to get to to do that, you know? So, but it made you wonder. That was my follow-up question was if you always, if you always naturally had a frame on you and you, you answered that before I could ask it. Did you feel singled out or yeah. was that a, a culture there? It was a culture for sure. By this head coach. It was a culture. It wasn't just you exclusive because you had some muscle on you. No. It spread to other female athletes. Yeah, definitely. And like you're 19. So it's like you're carrying a little bit of like that baby fat still. Like not everything is like, you know, I'm I'm much more defined as a person now. But it was definitely the culture on the team. And I mean, I had several more than several, um, teammates struggling with those issues and had probably been struggling with them in high school, but then came into the collegiate world where this was probably pushed even, even more. They felt that pressure even more and it got just absolutely, you know, 10 times worse. Um, so yeah, it was definitely hard to be around for a long time. And I think this is such a converse. This is like every female distance runner has like this experience, and that's really a shame. And it's so old by this point. It's so old. Every style of training has been addressed scientifically by now. Yeah. And yet we're still holding on to this thing. Like even if you decided every runner would be faster if they were lighter, if you followed any sort of logic in science, you would say, and we should take as long as possible to get down to that new weight. Even if that was the, you decided we are pursuing this goal. Right. Everyone should be 10 pounds lighter. You'd say, could we get it done in a year? Yeah. But for them to say, let's get it done by the next meet. Right. A, that's logically, it can't be good things you're getting rid of in a week or a month. Right. And B, of course it's going to screw someone up. It's just such an old, tired thing. And all these programs, which no disrespect to your program, because my program was the same way. They were on a major downswing. Has you yeah. kind of ever recovered? Yeah. Two, so after I left, actually, they the women had won the Big East Conference. So, but not off the base of their distance runners. No, they we did in cross country. Oh, they did one year. Yeah, one year. Yeah, like okay. the year the year I left. Um, and the men and women had some eight hundred runners and milers for yeah. a little bit, but never a good distance program. Never a good distance program, really. And that seems to be the thread. Like 
it's yeah. you're grasping at straws because you don't know how to build a program. So let's just try to make everyone lighter. It's just exactly. it's so old by this point. So old. And it's, it was like, so looking back on it, it's like so confusing because my strengths are strength. Like I'm a power runner. Like this is why I'm good at, or was good at distances. Like I wasn't a 10 K runner in college, even though I've run good 10 K times. Like I am a great 5k runner. I am a great 3k runner. Like that was my wheelhouse. Why do I need to weigh a hundred pounds to be good at that? It like, like I was doing well where I was. So it's like, there was so much like looking back on it and like, this just never even made any sense, you know? And, and they're like, you'll cut five seconds off your mile time. If you're, if you lose 10 pounds, like that's, I don't like that ratio, you know, only five seconds. That's it. You know what I mean? Like I better be cutting 30 off if I'm losing 10 pounds, like, cause it's going to be hard for me to lose 10 pounds when you don't have a lot to lose. And this is just your body type, you know, but clearly like having this body type has paid off because this is like, I'm doing hybrid and I feel like I have thankfully the right tools to, to be successful in this. I'm a, I'm fast enough. Um, I'm arguably faster than the, you know, my running times arguably are faster than all of the women I race against and I can throw up weight. So it's like, clearly it, it coincides in a positive way for what I'm doing now. And what's the long-term ramification of one route versus the other? Do you promote a better weight and stronger body? Okay. You have the tools to be healthy or successful at sport or life for the rest of your life. Yeah. And if you promote the other one, you're playing with fire that you're never going to be able to do anything without mental hangups your entire life. There are many of the women that I re- I was on my team that were phenomenal athletes in college and they do they don't even do anything anymore. They don't run anymore, they don't compete anymore, and I'm sure knowing who they are that a lot of it was because of all of those things that they went through. Which is really sad. Well, it's short-sighted and selfish by the coaches yes. is what it is. I saw a thread recently. Um, it was somebody on one of our distance running threads that said, if you take a serious look at the best D3 collegiate distance runners and you take a serious look at the best D1 collegiate distance runners and you fast forward 15 or 20 years, about to the age of 40, say most D3 powerhouses would wipe the floor with the D1 powerhouses if you took the same rosters and put them 15 or 20 years ahead because a lot of the D1 programmings are so demanding and so damaging. Mm -hmm. And not that every D3 program is healthy, but there is a different feel to them. And not to use myself as the example, but I'm 40 and still thriving on my endurance training and I have teammates who are kicking butt. And you start looking around at some of the D1 guys and girls and you're like, where'd they go? Of course, some make it through, of course. And they're the best of the best. But by large, if you took all the rosters across the country, a lot of the D3 people who had less pressure and less of that sort of environment stuck with it longer. And a lot of your former teammates are no longer even interested in putting on their running shoes because of it. It's just an interesting dynamic that you hear. Um, a follow-up question I had for you, you were talking about speed and times and people aspire, they want to know what the best of the best are doing in this sport and what they, what is attainable. And so I yeah. kind of want a comparative, um, we do like to talk speed in the pointy end of the spear. Um, how fast were you running in high school and college? Like some of your bests. And then could you compare that like to now? Like 
I think people are curious, like what speed does it take to be a potential world championship in hybrid? Like what kind of, what time trialing, what, what would, what would you be at now? I'm curious about then and now, as far as that goes. Okay. So obviously cross country is a little bit different, so it's not like a road 5k, but I was usually an 18, 19 minute 5k cross girl. And we live in, I live in upstate New York. So like these courses are hilly. So running 18 minutes is like, that's, you don't have that many people around you going in the 17s, like where I live. Um, but now as in, you know, in a older person, I like even just, um, maybe five, six weeks ago, I ran a 1720, um, 5k time trial by myself. Um, my fastest time is 1642. I've consistently run low 17 5k's though, like, the, uh, you know, 1712, 1720. That's usually the realm I'm, I'm in. I had an amazing day that one day I had Jarrett Newby. I had two other local hammer guys that were running like 15, 16 minutes, um, in this race with me. And I, Ran my first mile in 5.08, so not how I was. <laughs> Is it your PR 5.05? Yeah. My, P, my like, yeah, dude, wild. So not how I would approach running this 5K, but the, the gritty athlete I am can just, like, hang on um, for dear life. So it's funny because I'm, like, not that different of a miler than I am for, like, a 5K. Um, I think I get, like, better with the like the grittiness of like the distance and and like the hurt which is like really funny so not how can i, I stop you for a second there yeah kirk her pr in the miles 505 and she went out at 508 for a 5k but the 505 was in college and this is like i'm like 30 at this point but it wasn't smart let's just say kirk that you were a 410 miler, even fit in college. Can you imagine going out at 415 for a 5K? <laughs> what would happen to you like no. 60 seconds later? Not even 60 seconds later. So if this that... was like a race that happened like during COVID and we had had no races and I just, I got really excited and I just took off. Well, you were on 1555 pace through the mile. So let's talk about yeah. how that ended then. <laughs> so yeah we at? slowed way down we slowed way down to like five probably 30 i might have even hit 540 i don't i don't remember exactly but all i know is and like then i'm running i'm like running finishing and i'm looking at my watch and like i'm yelling to my coach i'm like i'm gonna break 17 he's like well it's not over yet like keep going <laughs> like you're not done you're like i had like the point one left still and I'm like doing the math in my head. So it was pretty, pretty funny. But, um, but yeah, having the guys to chase is like why that even ended up happening. So if currently I ran within, I'll even say 10 seconds of my current mile PR, like if whatever I could run today in a mile, if I went 10 seconds off that for a mile and tried to run two more, I don't think I could run within a minute, maybe a minute and a half of my 5k potential yeah it's kind of outrageous it's an asinine thing to do you want to run your best 5k you better go out in low five and pray for dear life for the second two miles because that's what i was doing uh, 
But you're also implying that you probably had better mile fitness than like you probably if you Definitely. mile time trialed would have run faster than 505. So it's not, yeah. you know, an apples at to that apples point, comparison. At that point in my running, still like, blasphemy in my workouts, I was doing mile repeats in sub 520 for like five, you know, like I was no joke. Like my workouts were really good. Like I worked, I was working. And that's when I was running like 120 for the half, 121 for the half. Um, half was never a great distance for me personally. Like I, I just couldn't quite hang on to that like six minute pace or faster for that duration. Um, but yeah, like 5K, 10K, even maybe 15K, I feel like I was really strong at um, in my late, like late 20s, early 30s. And it's carried over. Like I do one speed workout where it's just a speed workout every week and I'm hitting paces that I've hit like, you know, years ago. Um, and so that's, that's really cool to see. Cause it's a totally different, like I'm doing so much more training. Like back then I was like just running and lifting like three days a week. And the lifting was not crazy heavy. It was just to like keep some base strength not get injured. Um, and so now compared to what I'm doing, the fact that I'm still pretty similar running wise, but have built my strength up so much more has been like a really cool experience for me. So that's, I'm really stoked about that. So, and it kind of like hybrid, like really goes like, it's that it's kind of crushing the belief that you can't be strong and fast at the same time as mm -hmm. a distance runner. And I love that because I, I hated that narrative so much. Mm -hmm. I constantly am working on breaking that narrative myself. Um, even though I haven't dipped in the hybrid space yet, but, um, I want to get to a number of things with you and we have like 15 to 20 minutes top. So, um, you need to one, tell us what happened after Yukon and we need to between there and then finding high rocks, we need to bridge that gap. Can you walk us through all of that? I know it's a longer timeline, but what, what happened? Yeah. So I very quickly out of college ended up having my daughter. Um, I was just running and working out, but really after college, I just right after college, I didn't really have any desire to be like super competitive um, in running, but like I'd still just run like every day for health and just because I love to run. Um, and then after I had my daughter, I ran with her in a jogger for four straight years, almost every day in the middle of that, she was about two. I actually had back surgery. Um, I had like a severe herniated disc. So that was a big like halt for me athletically. I think I probably would have gotten into competitive running a little bit sooner in my twenties. Like I was like 25 when this happened. Um, and had it not been for that, cause that really put me back. Like I could barely run a mile or two for a long time without like being in like a lot of pain. Um, but like six months, seven months after I had that surgery is when I really started like trying to get back into the racing scene. So, and I started coaching then too, um, high school. And I think that really started helping motivate me. Um, like myself, I had a couple really, really, really talented athletes. Um, one actually had a full ride to Georgetown and he's been incredibly, incredibly successful. And I'm sure will go 
pro and have, you know, his chance at that. Um, and he was a steepler and, and he's run a sub four minute mile several times. So like really legit career for him. So like, I think just being around the running scene again, really, um, started kind of inspiring me to get back out there myself. And I randomly like jumped in a road 5k, like hadn't done any speed work at all. And I think I ran like a 19, like 19 minutes. So I was like, okay, like I still got a little something like I could work, like we can work with this. This is not bad, you know? Um, and I got hooked up with a coach locally and that's kind of like where it started to take off. So I was like 26 and I just started kind of then getting into the road running scene. Um, and here, like, that's kind of, that was kind of the, the beginning of like, what's led me here. And then when COVID happened and a lot of the races got shut down, I started really getting into lifting more like heavier lifting. I started doing some power lifting training, um, like June before I did my first high rock. So like three months before I did my first high rocks, I actually did a power lifting me in like one <laughs> and like set, like set a New York state record for my age group or something. Um, so that was like cool. And I think it was just having the right combination at the right time is really what like that was the gap bridge because if I had jumped into hybrid or this stuff with just running, I don't think I would have would be having the success that I'm having now. Um, I just had a lot of things that I needed to fix, especially after having surgery, like a major surgery. Um, I would go in and out of having back issues still because I just didn't, I never like you have surgery, but I never fixed the root cause of the issue, which was weakness. And I really started emphasizing that when races weren't happening because I had nothing else to do. So it seemed like the perfect time. Um, and then I got just like hooked on it because I love anything that is different and challenges me. Um, so I really was just like, the year before I got into high rocks, I wasn't even racing that much. I was running just because I wanted to run when I wanted to run. I wasn't doing a ton of workouts. I, I would occasionally do some interval stuff. Um, but that was really about it. And then Jarrett Newby is actually the one who told me about high rocks. So I owe a lot to him. That's why I have so much, so many nice things to say about him at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> Cause he's the one who was like, Hey, I think you should try this. Uh, there's a race in New York in September. You know, I know I hear about this like four months before I did my first race and I started working with rich six weeks before my first race, high Rex race. So not very long. I didn't really have a ton of time, you know, training hybrid before I started competing. So that's kind of the story. It's interesting that you paired them in a vacuum. Yeah. Got really good at running. Then you worked a ton on powerlifting. And then you found the sport and put them all together. You missed yeah. the block of compromised lap counting. But other than that, like you showed up with a pretty <laughs> solid skill set for how to attack yeah. this sport. Yeah. Well, the other part of it was... Um, during that like COVID COVID time thing, gyms were closed. My friends and I did a Murph together and we did a couple like prep workouts where we'd meet at a track and I kind of naturally end up always leading these things. 
And um, that kind of started to become a really regular thing. And so while I was doing a lot of the heavy lifting, I was basically like my crew was getting together twice a week, doing kind of hybrid style training, um, kind of crossfit kind of like that mixture of both, but they were long, like an hour, you know? So that also really obviously helped prepare me for this. Even if I didn't know how to do the skier correctly or with perfect form or row with perfect form, I was starting to do workouts where all of those mixtures were thrown in there. You know, you did some machine work with some dumbbell stuff with burpees. You know, we were doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, so I did feel like I had a really good base, like before I started doing this, but there was, there obviously was a lot like left on the table that I needed to clearly work on. And then that's like, Rich was, and I was, it's funny because I was very hesitant to start working with Rich. I was like, I don't know. I think I can do it on my own, you know, like, um, just probably being a little bit naive about things. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I ended up signing up with him because here we are. So despite him, you still managed to take second at a world championship and win DECA. His training is good enough for a second place at world championships. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so how many times have you thought like, I've, uh, I thought this before I saw Spartan race world championships on TV back in 2000. 15 it goes back to which is crazy but i watched it and i was like i've been training for this for the past decade and didn't even know it right do you often run that own narrative in your head oh yeah i that's exactly how i feel especially after having this year it's like this was made for me like i just feel like i'm so like it just has everything that i all of my strengths Hyrox has all of them, you know, like, or in some way, you know, um, and the things that most people hate, like I love, I love doing walking lunges because I'm a lunatic. I love burpees because I'm a lunatic. These are things I do all the time, just on my own. I, my classic lunge workout is a 400 or 800 meter body weight walking lunges straight through. I do, I've done this for years, long before I ever found high rocks. And, um, so it's just like, holy shit. Like this is, this is exactly what I've been like looking for, you know? And it was right under my nose the entire time. If I got into OCR, I would have known about it sooner, but obstacles are never my jam. I'm not, not into it. So so yeah, this is like the right thing for me and, and DECA too. I'm, I actually can't wait to do a DECA fit because I feel like that is potentially maybe even more in my wheelhouse than even Hyrox is. Just with the, the speed ability that I have with running that I know I have with running um, and obviously having had success in the DECA mile, which I was like, I don't know if I'm this fast, but we'll give it a go. Um, I feel like the fit is mm -hmm. another like race that really has my name written all over it. So I can't wait to do that this year too. Well, and DECA rewards nonlinear athleticism a little more than High Rocks does. High Rocks, yeah. you can be a straight line athlete. DECA, you have to be able to turn more often, transition more often, even things like box step overs and 
all the little up down off the ground, your athleticism will be rewarded way more than a high rocks does. Yeah, definitely. And being like compromised running from high rocks is different than the the type of compromised running you're doing in deca. Like you have this, you have heart rate spikes in in high rocks, but it's more consistent. At least mine is. Deca's like you're doing 20 back step overs as fast as possible. Like you can't breathe, you can't breathe. And then you have to go run. You know what I mean? So having a, like being able to do that and do that well, I think, cause the weight's not heavy. None of these weights are heavy in DECA. It's, it's really just like a lot of it's aerobic capacity and how, how you can handle kind of being redlined for the whole time, you know? So it, it is a different, totally different stimulus. Yeah, it seems like high rocks. The goal is to never spike. And right. Deca, the goal is to be as good as you can get at spiking. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any um, any still curiosities about how fast Meg can get from a pure run standpoint? I just wonder about that, or if it is, are we so emotionally committed now to the hybrid space that? those numbers don't mean as much as they used to. Is there any like, cause you're a, a runner by nature, right? That's how you started anyway. Yeah. So my curiosity is like, do you still strive to be like, I want to run the fastest 5k of my life still like uh, things like that. Are those in the noggin ears or where are you at? Yeah, no, I, I, I think like being in the hybrid space has just kind of heightened my desire to be good at everything, you know? So I, I want to like this summer, I was like, I'm going to hop in some local races. Like I'm going to do the four on the fourth, you know, race or whatever. I'm going to maybe go do the Boilermaker 15 K up in Syracuse or Utica. And like, I, I do want to really test my running because I feel like I've gained so much more mental strength with just like how hybrid racing feels and how running feels that like my my mentality with running is so much stronger. Like the hurt of just pure running is nothing like the hurt that I've experienced in some of these hybrid races. So I feel like I can just get through it way easier. You know, it's, it's just, I'm just in a different space. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I do, that is something that I really want to do and that I have been thinking about. Um, and that Rich and I have talked about, and I don't know, like, I kind of want to test my half again. Like, there's like a lot of things I want to try um, as long as they, you know, coincide with the the different seasons of hybrid racing. But I certainly don't think that doing an intense running program is going to hurt me. So, yeah, so there's definitely that desire. And I've never done a marathon. That's still something that I want to do. I was training for my first one and they all got shut down. I was at like 20 mile long runs at that point. So I was very disappointed that I never got to really like test that out. So like, these are all things that I would love to do, but it's timing is the key. You know, maybe when I'm a little more washed up with hybrid, I'll switch over to like real long stuff, but I got to keep this speed going that I have. And I need to get that mile time under five minutes. Like this is not, not good. Not if you good. would have just kicked from 300 to 400 of your 5k, you would have gone. Under. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're 30, right? How old are you? I'm going to be 32 on Monday. Oh, happy early birthday. Thank you. Um, so you young thirties, I know time feels like it's really, uh, it's really ticking by, but still a lot of, a lot of like years to still like grab onto all this. That's for sure. 
I had um yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to get from you before we wrap up here is, um, again, people like to shoot for things and they like to understand expectations or, or goals to set for themselves. Um, full-time job, uh, single mother, um, lots of traveling for racing. Like what kind of training volume is Meg Jacoby trying to squeeze into seven days each week? Could you just walk us through, you don't have to give away all the sauce, of course, but like what, what volume does that look like for you? Yeah, so I'm still doing like pretty high running mileage. I run 50 to 60 miles a week. I do a long run that's like 13 miles at least every week. Um, well, 12 to 13, I guess. My like my running programming honestly looks pretty similar to what you would be doing if you were just running, like just a, being a pure runner. Other than the fact that some of my running workouts are obviously like high rock style workout. So it's with stations, but I still always do like one tracker speed interval workout. That's just that. Um, so yeah, I mean, my mileage is pretty high. Like when I was running a few years back, I was running about 70 miles a week. So I'm not that far below that with all the other stuff. I lift two days a week, like kind of strips, like a full upper day, full lower day, but I do a ton. I go to a CrossFit gym. I do a lot of Metcon work to keep strength up because you can't just like, like I can't go do like a powerlifting workout for two out, like a leg full leg day and then go run fast the next day. So I've kind of learned that I have to, um, kind of keep, I keep trying to keep the strength up, but the volume a little bit lower for like the lifting that I would have been doing in the past. It, It just, it's a little bit hard to maintain both things. Um, yeah. And then I do, I'm probably putting 20 hours a week in, I would guess it's a lot, three hours a day, at least more than likely, um, of working out. That's pretty standard. There are days where I work out like four times. It's crazy, but not all of it is like intense. You know, it's some things it's like an eight mile easy run. And then I do a 40 minute, like, machine workout. So some things are lower impact, even if it seems like I'm doing so much at a time. Um, but yeah, like I would, I would guess that the only, one of the only people doing more volume than me is like Dylan Scott. You should keep it that way. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) But it's been working for me. I've been pretty injury free during all of this as well. Um, And that's the biggest key for me. And I think I had started to see a little bit of like, when I first started getting into this, I wasn't doing quite as much volume and then obviously learned pretty quickly. Like if this is something that I'm going to get really good at, I need to put a little bit more work in. And that adjustment period, I remember like I started having those like not sleeping great, just maybe got a little too high with the volume a little too quickly. And so I think I've got it really down, um, for me now and I'm, and I'm in a good place with it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's getting to the point in our sports, OCR and hybrid that it's like any other endurance sport. You can't contend for a world title without being over 15 hours per week anymore. Yeah. And Definitely. That's, it legitimizes the sport, I think, when it requires such a high input to get any output out of it. Right. I think that the thing about that is like people think like three hours every day. Well, like 
a one high rocks. If I do a full high rocks workout, that's a two mile warm up. I'm doing eight to 10 K of volume, just running plus stations in that workout. And then I'm doing a two mile cool down. I'm easily getting, it's, it's taking me almost two hours and I'm getting 10 miles of running in, in just that one workout. So like people think 60 miles is so much and it is, but it's easy to get there. It really isn't that hard when you, when you put all of the pieces together. So well, break it down. You know, it's like if you if you really just split time, you're probably running actual running time on feet eight hours a week. But there's also time between your warm up and your cool down and interval reps, and so those get right. stretched out. But running on feet exactly. maybe eight hours, and then you add in three hours of or two to three hours of machine work, and now you're at eleven to twelve hours, and then you have your strength training and mobility and You'd be pretty surprised how quickly, like getting to 15 hours, I can make that happen. It takes a sacrifice, but it starts to add up pretty quick when you start actually doing the math. Um, But I would say probably eight hours of that is time on feet. Definitely. Definitely. I I know my running is my strength. So for me, that's like the number one priority of all the work that I do is like the running needs to be the number one thing. And I think... I, I know a lot of people hate hearing this who do high rocks, especially the people that don't love running, but you're, you're not going to see improvement. If you're not a good runner, you're not going to, you know, it, high rocks has so much running in it, whether we like it or not. Five miles is not nothing. It's a lot. You can't fake it, you know? So, and I feel like that's where most people have the biggest, that's the biggest area that you can potentially improve is running for, for the vast majority of people, especially like we're looking at the age group people. It's like, there's only so much time that you can cut off a sled push or a row, you know, cause you're sacrificing, you're potentially sacrificing something in another area. If, if you go too hard on this or too hard on this, then it impacts other things. Running is the, the part of the puzzle that I think for most people, if they can improve that, they're going to be golden. Well, people won't like hearing 15 hours a week, 60 miles, it's not hard. Again, things are relative, but it's not the hardest part of the equation. No. 15 to 20 hours isn't the hardest part. It's fitting it in and waking up to do it or staying awake to do it at the end of the day or squeezing it in on a break. That's the hardest part. Exactly. Almost anyone on the planet could work out for two hours a day. Yeah. Three hours a day. If they got to choose what the modality of workout was, it's where do you put it with a life? That's the challenging part. Yeah, no, and it, it definitely is. And so for me, it's split up and it's, you know, sometime in the morning before work and then sometime in the evening after work. And sometimes it's even time after that. Um, and the weekends, I'm a weekend warrior. I fit the most, you know, my most voluminous stuff is on the weekend. I, I'm lucky I work a, my company is a Monday through Thursday. We're a four, 10 hour company. And even though I don't get 10 hours in a day because there's no possible way I could, and I, I'm lucky I have the flexibility to be able to do that. Having that Friday where I don't have to go into the office and I, my daughter's at school and I can get a huge high rocks workout in during the day and not have to be up at five to do it, that those are the things it's, it's figuring it out in your life where it makes sense too. And that's, 
that's been a big part of it for me. And then doing a long run on Sunday and a high rucks workout style after that, because again, it's another day of the weekend that I can get something big in. Um, so yeah, those are like the key pieces for me is, is that kind of stuff. And it's also just, I got to a point when I was pure running where I stopped allowing it. I, I stopped allowing there to be excuses. And again, this is a very intense mindset to have, but I was like, nope, like the, the day going wonky things happening that derail the day or change the plan. It's no longer an excuse for me. I will figure it out and I will make it happen regardless. And a lot of that means getting up really early to do it. And I know like people hate that. And a lot of people don't like working in the morning or working out in the morning, but that's, that was kind of like where I got myself and pre all of this. And that's a huge part of why I've been able to do this now. Just getting in that groove of like, it doesn't matter what happens. Life throws at me. I'm getting it done no matter what. Kirk, we talked a while, maybe a month ago, and the things we notice with athletes, the trends, that the successful ones, they make their decisions before the competition starts so that when it gets bad or when things go off the rails or when it's just as miserable, there isn't a decision to be made because they already made it. They just do what has to be done. It's the same exact thing we're seeing here with training. That once the decision isn't a factor anymore, like I've already yeah. decided when whatever happens, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Then you get it done. And it's way easier said than done. It is way easier said than done. It's important that you made it ahead of time. Yes. And that was one of my biggest things with High Rocks too, was like, like I came in, I ran a 106 uh, with the, you know, I had a penalty for the lap issue and I was like, oh, like you know, I remember talking with Rich and being like, what do you think? Like, you think this time will hold? Do you think I need to go do another race? And he's like, no, I, I think you'll hold. Thankfully I went and did another race. But like after my first one, like I literally made basically a deal with myself where I was like, I'm all in. And, and if I want to be successful, I know I have to be all in. And when I made the deal with myself, that was it. There is no going back on your word. There is no going back on a handshake. You know, so I made that deal with me and that has been a huge, and then I went and did Chicago and my second race and I had broke the world record at that point. And it's because I made that deal. I said, I'm doing this and I'm going all in and I'm giving it everything that I have. And I think that that's a really important thing because the, the, the best of the best people, they're not even questioning that deal. That that's just, it's just a non-negotiable. You know, and then you don't go back on it either. It's not like a, well, maybe I won't. Like when you make the that choice, like it's done. That's it. Like you're like you were saying. And I'm sure that every person up there in that elite fifteen at some point has made that very deal with themselves. I, I had a reaction to that. The people are going to be feeling one of three things. Either they're sitting there going like, "Amen, preach." Yeah, and that means that you are that person. You're feeling extremely called out by it, and it means good. You get that you're missing that that component, and you can fix it. Or you're saying, that's not healthy. I don't agree with it. I really don't think that that's a good balance, at which point you're also called out by it, and you can fix it. Yeah. Every single person is going to react, and two-thirds of them are going to be negative to it, and that's good. That's a really good thing to be feeling right now if you're listening to this. 
So you brought up a word called balance. And this is another thing that people will probably hate to hear. However, if you've if you've heard if you've been listening at this point, you've heard part of my story and you know that in 8 months how much I've been able to accomplish in this space so far. I listened to a reel one time and I can't remember who said it, but basically the gist of it was that balance is the excuse that people make for not doing the things that they know they should be doing. And that is something that ever since I heard it, there there is no balance for me because I'm all in on this. There is no such thing as that. I'll go have my fun after the world championships. I don't need to have my fun here today in April and go out and party or whatever and, and then ruin my training day the next day. But this is who this is me and this is who I am. I'm not saying this is how everyone needs to be or everyone needs to approach it. But these are the deals and the conversations that I personally have had with myself and that I know have helped lead me here to where I am now. And had I not had those thoughts and I, if I didn't have this mindset and if I didn't have this intensity, then we might not even be having this conversation. I might just be Meg Jacoby had a decent year in high rocks, not Meg Jacoby's rookie of the year has three world records, etc. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just because of the type of competitor that I am, you know, and it's not sustainable for every person. It isn't. And I know this isn't going to be my life forever either. And that's something I think people need to get to. I know we talked about I'm 32. So I potentially have many more years of this, but this could also go away in a year. I could be not great a year from now, especially with how the field has been. There could be 10 new Meg Jacobys next year who can all kick my ass. You never know when your time is over. So that was part of all of those thoughts are part of like what has gotten me to this point, where my mindset's at, how intense it is, where I'm at mentally going forward. I know that physically I feel great in that I I want to be Jezebel Kremer, who's 42 in the Elite 15 this past Friday or last Friday. That's my goal. You know, I want to mm-hmm. be that person, but I don't know if I will be. So right now I'm seizing the opportunity as best as I know how, and that is to give it 120%. So that's where I'm at. Hope that was motivating. It was. How do you not respect that? Yeah. Bracken likes to often ask the question at the end of these podcasts, what's what's one thing people need to hear today? And I think I think a lot of people needed to hear the last 10 minutes of this conversation. Yeah. So we don't even have to ask the question yeah. because I think the people who needed to hear something just heard it. And it's very inspiring, very respectful, I think. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. This is worth the wait, Meg. Yeah. All right, good. Sure was. Sure was. Rest of the year, what are your plans in 30 seconds? Go. Then we're done. I'm going to shift some focus to do some DECA stuff, get some qualifiers in. Um, I'm doing Battle Bunker next weekend um, in North Carolina. That's Hunter's competition. It's the regional. I'm looking forward to that. Um, And... Then high rock season will start in the fall again. So, yeah, I'm I'm open to doing some different style competitions too. Like if I had to do an obstacle in a hybrid comp, I would do that. So, 
um, yeah, I'm just trying to like do things for fun and get some hard training in the summer. Okay. Hybrid that's focus. It. Still hybrid focus. That's what I'm hearing. Hybrid okay. Focus. That's what I figured, but I wanted I'm gonna to make do sure. Some road, I'm going to do some road stuff too. So who knows? Maybe I'll like PR my 5k next month. We'll see. Probably. <laughs> maybe the mile along the way. The mile is, if I don't, then you won't, you definitely won't hear about it because I'll be embarrassed. So. Well, thank you so much, Meg. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks for your time. 